Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, author and performance artist Fiona McGregor's Buried Not Dead is a collection of essays spanning decades of reflections on underground queer performances, writers, poets, artists, dancers, and DJs, all to their communities important, some reaching beyond to shake up the broader culture. Fiona McGregor joins me later to talk about her book and the artistic lives that informed it. And Summer watches the light shade falling on Winnie as a parasol rises over her body against the glare of the blazing sun, like stepping under a full tree on a stinking hot day. Summer can almost feel the glorious relief of that shadow. But the parasol is not a tree, and Winnie is not a mobile human being, and she is not relieved. The heat is so much greater. In Claire Thomas's new novel, The Performance, three women, Margot, Ivy and Summer, all at very different life stages with very different preoccupations, watch the same Beckett play, drawing from it revelations about their own lives beyond the taut drama playing out in front of and quietly around them. In the distance, beyond these walls, bushfires rage that will devastate and reshape many lives, but the quiet acts within the theatre itself propels each woman to a new realisation about themselves and the people closest to them. Claire Thomas joins me now to talk about her latest book and the craft behind it. Claire, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me, Mel. Now, I uh, I really, I just spoke with you very briefly off air about how much I enjoyed this book. Uh, I really love that you've kind of, uh, you've, you've created these very different women and you've sort of played the action of each against one another and also played off the action on the stage. It is a particularly well-crafted novel. Um, And I do really want to talk about that because um, anyone can see from your bio that certainly uh, craft and the craft of writing has been a preoccupation of yours as well as literary studies. So let's talk a little bit about that. Firstly, where did the Mm -hmm. genesis of this novel kind of arise? It was quite a simple moment when I was at the theatre and someone in the audience was reacting to it in a way that was quite different to the other people. And I got fixated on this idea of the collective theatre experience, but the very individuated and subjective um, response to it. And I stuck on that idea of, of having a novel inside people's heads and I didn't do anything with it for a long time because I wasn't quite sure how to make it work. And then I just decided to get started one day and I wrote it. Yeah. It's a really wonderful story in a lot of ways because there's an element of, you know, that there's a like a, a strong um, literary history of, of 
you know, writing about different intersecting lives that intersect in a given moment or in a given scenario. And certainly yeah. you are drawing on that great tradition here. I sort of love that you've created these three women in these very significantly kind of staggered, I guess, life stages, you know, someone who's in their 20s, someone who's in their 40s and someone who's in their 70s, sort of all uh, reflecting on different preoccupations um, and perceiving what's happening around them in relation to their own, the thing that they brought with them to the theatre and then also misinterpreting Mm. one another and one another's motivations. I think you've done that really beautifully. Uh, how did you write each of these um, these sections? Did you approach them uh, like a you know you were writing each as a contained um, yeah. world and then intersect you know gradually work the intersections in? Um, yes. Yeah, so what I I kind of had the play script and I wrote that down um, and worked out the first act. I would do six chapters and three chapters in the second act. Because the whole novel obviously takes place just during the during the actual performance of the play, so it's very contained in that way. Um, and then I wrote it in order, which I think is unusual. Like I didn't kind of do a first draft. I can't do that, which is what I've come to accept about my process. I don't think it's necessarily the most productive way to be, but it's how I am. So I did it in order. So I started with the first chapter, wrote that and then kind of shook off that character and then got into the next one and it, it worked that way. And in terms of their intersection between the three characters, it's quite um, minimal really in the in the novel. Um, but yes, that kind of gradually became apparent how I could get them to relate and I I always knew that I wanted the young woman to be an usher. Just be, I wanted someone who wasn't just a straightforward audience member. Um, so that was always going to be easy to have her interacting with them in some respect. Yeah, and then when I got to the interval, I knew I had to do something different at interval. And that was the, the key moment of intersection between them. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to talk about the interval because that is, um, you know, really where you start to play around with craft huh. and um, do something a bit different. But before we do, let's let's talk about yeah. each of the three women. Um, you set sail with Margot, who is mm-hmm. an older woman, an academic. Um, she's, uh, you know, kind of really uh, – what I love about her voice is that she's kind of withholding a bit. She's giving – you know, her, her kind of perspective is sort of gradually – working towards a revelation that will happen in the last act of the um, of the play and the last act of the book. But she is kind of, you know, she's painting a picture of herself that is slightly, feels slightly like a faulty narrator in a way, but uh, we're within yeah. that, that perspective. Then Ivy, oh, sorry, I think then we go to Summer, is that right? Summer, the yeah. uh, the, yeah, um, the usher, young usher in mm-hmm. her 20s. Um, she's, you know, madly in love with her girlfriend, uh, a tattoo artist, and she's, um, you know, in, thrown into this kind of really uh, awful situation where she's trapped working while the bushfires are raging outside and her girlfriend's heading off towards um, danger, basically. So there's this is the kind of quite intense setup for her. And then Ivy, who is probably the most kind of 
I guess, uh, ambiguous character in some ways, I find. Um, she's sort of a woman in her 40s who somehow, we discover later, has come into a large amount of money but wasn't originally wealthy um, and who yeah. is sort of really suffering the legacy of an incredible loss um, and a sort of a uneasy renewal and, you know, is somehow also has a, an intersection with Margot from her past. So this is yes. the setup of these three women. And within that, mm-hmm. you, you really do spend, as you say, the entire time, all of the action or almost all of the action is, is within the context of how they react to the performance and going back into their own heads and, re, uh, I guess, prosecuting things that have happened in their lives. So can you talk to me about why you chose that particular Beckett play <laughs> to mm-hmm. kind of uh, to play off against each of these characters? Yeah, well, there's several aspects to that. The first one is quite a practical one in that it's a very simple play in terms of stage business. It's just this simple, stunning premise of a woman buried up to her waist and she remains there. So it's very easy to kind of encapsulate that in a a few sentences and obviously what I'm trying to do in this book would not have worked with a big cast you know a large busy play on stage because it would have just been too much to try and convey so there was that practical aspect and just there's just one woman and then there's a man who occasionally appears um very simple and easy to kind of use and manipulate but more than that I think that that image that Beckett has created of this woman buried in the earth is just one of the most resonant and evocative images in contemporary uh, sorry modern theatre and there's so much in that image and so much metaphorical potential even before there's any words spoken in the play just that that premise itself is spectacular and then Winnie talks for the whole play so there's this huge amount of uh, voice and memory and ideas going on there's just so much happening and so while the play is absolutely central to my novel I only use a very small proportion of it in the performance so I was able to kind of just pick out like the old little phrase or word or moment that then I felt I could resonate um, in the minds of my characters in some way. So sometimes the the image came from the play first and then I went with that and I just it was where my character's train of thought went. And off, there are pages and pages where the audience member doesn't even go back to the stage. Like she's just in her memory and kind of wallowing in that. And then she'll sort of snap back into the theatre and look up and, oh, there's the woman still sitting in the earth. And other times there was something I wanted to kind of consider in the character and so I tried to kind of find the thing in the play for that. So it worked both ways. There's yeah. some great wry moments that arise from the play itself though and to put it in the in context for the listeners, um, there are two actors on stage at most at any given time and that's uh, Winnie who's, who's gradually getting more and more buried under the earth, her situation becoming worse and worse and then her hapless partner, Willie, who mm-hmm. is somewhere off, uh, you know, like 
basically in a position, could be in a position to help her, but very definitely is not. So no. it's playing off on this sense of isolation within a relationship or many, many other yes. things, which yes. the wonderful thing about this is it's like uh, what you're doing is mirroring the experience of anyone who consumes art, which is that we mm-hmm. tend to bring with us our own baggage yes. and then we yes. project it onto what we're mm-hmm. seeing and it, while you are doing this with the play, we are, of course, doing this Thanks. with your book, mm-hmm. which, which leads me to, yes. rather neatly, to the uh, the kind of section we were alluding to earlier, which is mm-hmm. when we're coming into uh, your sort of playing around with the notion of what piece of art we are actually consuming, and that is yeah. when we reach the interval. Can you talk a bit about yeah. that, uh, the interval section? So I knew I wanted to include the interval, but I knew that I couldn't really write it in the same way as the other sections because that's all very internalised. I didn't want to just do a sort of straight, close third person for that. And I hit on the idea of writing a script, so writing a short play called The Interval and sort of so flipping the whole thing around. So where we've, the reader has been completely immersed in the three characters' minds, then in this interval section where watching them so we're watching them get a drink or go summer goes down to her like staff room so that they become performers themselves so that I, I wanted to kind of really play with the idea of where the performance lies who's the audience who's the performer is there any difference you know all that all those kind of porous categories and what's more real what's going on inside one's head or what's how you sort of are in concrete reality and what is, even is that? Yeah, so I could go on forever about that, but those, I was happy when I came up with the idea of the script for the interval, I have to say, because I just knew it had to be something uh, distinct. And the typesetters did a beautiful thing with, in the novel where it's completely, it looks completely different, this section, so it doesn't even have the header and footer on it, and it's different font and it, so it looks literally like a separate little document has been slid inside the novel which is what I wanted so that's that's also really yeah there's nice. a, a lovely kind of little grey tab at the edge of it as well yes. so it does look like someone yes. slipped a little script in there as yep. well uh, yeah. I, what I love the most about it, I have to say, Claire, is that you clearly, it feels like you've had fun writing this. And I think, yes. um, and I think that's a really interesting thing because, I, you know, there's this presumption that you sort of want to make a perfect uh, one when one writes a book, wants to make a kind of perfect artefact. But I also feel like you spend so much time in your own head creating these things that, um, that you know, that writing should be for the writer as well and there should be an, a level of enjoyment in playing around with form. We're a little bit less... We're more conservative in some weird ways than the Victorian novelists were. Um, you didn't mind playing around wildly and sometimes totally inappropriately with yes. perspective. I think we, we get a bit rigidly confined into one mm-hmm. mode. So it was, it's sort of fun to see that stuff happening still. Yeah, well, I spent long enough not enjoying myself and not doing anything and second-guessing everything that I responded to and found fascinating and was passionate about, and I just decided enough was enough on that. I'd done it for years, and so with this, once I started, I'd let myself um, do it, and I and I did love it. And for me, writing is a joy when, you know, when I'm doing it 
it's the not doing it and fretting about it and freaking out about it and being too self-conscious about it to, to not even allow myself to do it at all that is where the true agony lies. <laughs> yeah. Claire, it's uh, obviously regularly on this program I talk to guests. In fact, all of my guests get subjected to me asking them questions about craft, grilling them um, yeah. for information. But it's rare that I get someone who has uh, taught the craft of writing but also who has, you know, uh, basically been someone who's made it their life work to study um, liter- literary practice and theory. Yeah. So yeah. I do want to talk a little bit about that in terms of uh, just even whether or not, because many people will ask about whether studying writing is worth doing and what you gain from that. And I think this book is a real yeah. example of um, there is some kind of level of, of acknowledgement of, of literary structure and literary tradition in this book. Yeah. Um, and it's a very current modern book, but I can see there's a kind of formalism to some of what you're approaching things with. Can you talk about kind of um, the balance of that and whether there is a real benefit to people yeah. studying theory if they want to approach a more practical writing life or even the pitfalls of that uh, if you think that there are some. Yeah. Oh, there's so much to say about this. I mean, for me, I'm... Minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And God. Um, so primarily I think it's about reading and becoming a good reader. And if you have got the skills at reading, then that's invaluable as a writer. And I think... So I've taught a lot of literary studies I and I can pull apart a, a piece of writing. There, were, there was a long time there when I decided that's what I was. I was a professional reader. I was good at that and I, and I wasn't a writer because I was too hung up and because I couldn't just get something shitty out. I, I had to kind of perfect it as I went along, which is quite, you know, a very difficult process. But if you accept that that's your process, you accept it. But in terms of, like, the other thing I think that studying literature and, and studying writing and my writing now I recognise is just inflected with other writers. And I think that to think, to even pretend that anyone operates in a bubble and, and doesn't have sort of layers of influence and, and, I, and I like to think of writing as a response to other writing often or as a response to other art. And so that's really explicit in the performance in that, there's a, someone else's, you know, Beckett's plays at the centre. Yes. But that's making explicit what I think happens with all good literature, that it kind of, it's a response and a recalibration and a reimagining of what has come before for, you know, the, this contemporary moment. Mm. And so how I, I am kind of compelled to ask you, how did you kind of step out of that hypercritical state that has come from being a, um expert reader, I guess? Um, I was so unhappy not writing and I just got, I actually went to America and did this strange little workshop that just transformed me and I got funding to do that and it was a weird thing I would never have done in Australia because I was too self-conscious but in this completely sort of other other context, I was in a group of people that were not like me at all and everyone was very, um, you know, owning the facts of their ambition and their aspiration and their own subjective limitations as well. And I think that was a huge part of it for me, that just recognising that 
I am what I am and what I respond to is what it is and you can either just be so hung up about that that you end up producing nothing or you just go with it and interrogate it properly. So that's what I tried to... I just let myself do that. I, I, I think it was almost exhaustion from cumulative um, self-critique. I just, I, I just got to the point where I was just enough. It was like I, I either need to just give up on even thinking of myself as a writer ever or just get on with it and, and think properly about the limitations of the subject. Like if I'm concerned about whiteness and privilege, how about write something that, really grapples with what that stuff means like use it don't don't just pretend it doesn't exist and yeah so that that was transformative claire thomas thank you i, I think these are important uh, significant things for writers to consider um as well mm-hmm. and i appreciate you sharing your your craft and the um, experiences that you've had with us all thank you so much for joining me today on backstory thank you for having me That was uh, Claire Thomas who uh, joined me today to talk about her book, The Performance and the craft behind it and offered some some great insights, I think, for people who are maybe not letting themselves just lean into the writing that they have uh, ahead of them. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. You're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Candy Royale leading the charge at World in Hand. The best one had to be the night's debut at the Red Rattler featuring women of colour on the mic, whether introducing performers or blazing through her poem about her Palestinian grandfather. Yes, I am angry and it is a righteous anger. She grabbed the audience by the lapels and shook us to the bone like the best DJ does with music. And it was a poetry night that ended with dancing. I think such was the energy in the room. Valet, my friend. Valet. Fiona McGregor's essay collection, Buried Not Dead, shares stories that span decades of performances and experiences collected into a body of work that speaks largely in a roving stream of consciousness. Recollection, poetry, observation, honouring queer artists, dancers, poets, musicians, all that helped shape her artistic life, the city and the community around her through shifting tides and times. Fiona McGregor joins me now to talk about her book and the lives and works it immortalises. Fiona, welcome to Backstory. I think I've got you now. Okay. Can you hear me? I can hear you now, yes. Um, Great, so thanks. your work, Buried Not Dead, is has a real poignancy about it because there's this sense that you're sort of you know, you're kind of curating a life of um, experiencing uh, art, both as a practitioner of it and as part of a um, close-knit community of artists, as well as someone who, um, you know, observes the art of the broader culture as well. I want to talk to you about how you started curating this collection because it spans many decades of your life and it really does include work that you wrote some time ago as well as uh, more recent essays. How did this kind of body of work come into being? It was a combination of my editor at Giramondo, Nick Tapper, and me. Um, I took a collection to the publisher that had 
a huge array of non-fiction pieces in it and we whittled it down to be something that focused on performance. Also, The Life of the City, I suppose, Hidden Histories of the City and queer culture within that and, I suppose, personal memoir threads through it as well. Yeah, so I think you, you set off actually in the 1990s is sort of the, the original essay um, and you're writing vaguely from a, well, you're writing from a modern day perspective in some ways um, while slipping back into the sort of lexicon and feelings of the time. Um, that sort of happens throughout the work but you also do allow um, the feelings of those times or the actual words of those times to filter through. And and so there is this kind of um, strange energy to the collection where you're feeling like you are literally back in time sometimes reading it um, and then moving forward into modern times. I felt reading this was almost an artistic experience. Uh, I mean, of course, all reading is, but there was a sense of a performance going on in a way. I almost felt like I was um, listening to you sort of... Um, roving through these these memories how was it for you when you were creating this did you have a real sense of the rhythm of the collection um, and that it might be perceived in this kind of performance performative way no I don't think so I was yeah I was interested in focusing on artists individual artists so the, the bulk of the collection is long pieces which are interviews with artists and also deep critical appraisers of their work. And then either side of that, I suppose the, the introductory essays have a strong focus on queer culture and the last three essays have a very Olympiac quality to them and a more historical focus. And as far as the performativity goes, that just, yeah, that was one of the main themes, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I feel like uh, there's a, a quality in your work that um, even around the interviews feels like there's this really personal kind of implication. So I felt very absorbed um, into the text um, that you're sort of winding through these essays um, and these connections with artists that feels very much like um, it is, you know, uh, allowing the work to sort of affect, you know, the people who are perceiving it. Can you talk a bit about that in terms of your relationship between being a writer and being a performance artist? Because I think there is a kind of strong element of, you know, how these um, how these works have been both perceived by you and by others, um, but also how they maybe shape, you know, perceptions over time. Yeah, look, I'm interested in writing about it, that what I could do was write about performance art from the place of somebody who understands what it's like to make it, and that's really rare. In fact, I don't actually think anybody's doing that in this country right now. And also, people tend to write about performance art from an academic perspective, which I wasn't interested in doing, because I really wanted to impart the experience and the feeling. Um, it's got such a bad reputation. It's the sort of art form that people groan about and thing is the most boring but but I really wanted to get across the immediacy of it and obviously what I'm mainly writing about is body-based performance art and conceptual performance art so I really wanted to show people how exciting it is and how intense it is and being able to do that from first-hand experience gave me a unique grasp of it I suppose that's what I brought to it. Can you talk about some of the artists that we encounter in this text? 
Yeah, well, that's another thing I was doing was not looking at artists in a, a sort of mainstream popular way. I mean, one of them, Jeeva Patapan, calls himself an ex-artist, and he was a performance artist when he was in Britain and when there was enough money to, to tour Europe and actually live full-time as a performance artist. But since immigrating to Australia, he's been working for Starts, a refugee organisation, and he's the cultural programs officer. So he uses a lot of his experience as an artist to, I suppose, curate and produce projects um, with different communities. He's working with Assyrians at the moment, and he's worked a lot with Tamils because he is Tamil, and with different African communities like Sierra Leoneans. And then there's another artist who's actually a DJ called Lenny Katzen, and he doesn't practice as a DJ anymore either. But um, I guess I was interested in the oblique question of what does it mean to be a practicing artist, particularly in a country where it's so difficult to maintain a practice despite the fact that we're so affluent. And if I looked at the expanse of those artists, they're very much doing things differently to the artists that you would see profiled in the broadsheets or even in the mainstream art journals like Artlink and Art Monthly. They're not those sorts of artists. No, and I love that juxtaposition that you have because you do have, you know, an artist like Marina Abramovich that even those who don't know anything particularly about art or performance art would know. Um, That kind of um, measuring, which you don't do, you're sort of allowing each of these artists to sort of have their place in this collection in a way that, um, you know, that gives them equal billing, which I found really you know, extraordinary. Can you talk about the intention behind that? Because, again, you've sort of said it's really challenging what it is um, to be a working artist because it doesn't necessarily mean fame or money. What does it mean then, I guess? Uh, It probably means fame and money 1% of the time. It it actually means in Australia a lot of sacrifice and obscurity and feeling like the long-term unemployed a lot of the time. And the Abramovich example is good because she's pretty much the only artist who's an international star in the collection, although Mike Parr's in there as well, and he makes a decent living from his work, but he makes his money from his visual arts practice. And with that, he subsidises his performance art. So when I was writing about those two artists, I really put myself on the line to write things that other people hadn't written because they have been written about a lot. And Mike, for instance, has been written mostly written about mostly by men or by academics. And Marina Abramovich, when she came here, didn't really have any decent critique. She just had a lot of puff in the broadsheets and mostly by art critics who didn't know much about performance art. So I'm really trying to give the reader something, a new perspective. And maybe those artists are useful to readers who don't know much about performance art because they will at least have heard of them. And so there's a a little um, aperture of familiarity for them to go through. I find this an extraordinary work as well because I've been thinking a lot about the nature of criticism. Um, There's been a bit of you know, I've had I've been engaging in discussions where we've talked about what the relevance, say, for example, of book criticism is now. And I guess uh, historically, 
publishers may have seen it as a way to get um, people interested in the work or people to buy it. Increasingly, with you know the rise of social media and um, influencer culture, um, promotion is certainly not the the main kind of you know, effect of criticism. It's really about adding to the culture. It's still important even to those that would sell books in that respect. I'm thinking about art and you've mentioned that you feel like people who've been written about have been written about maybe in a a way that doesn't engage fully with what they're doing. Is there a central importance still for for someone to document uh, in words the nature of these ephemeral forms of, of work? And what is that for, really? Yeah, I think it's really important, but it's really difficult because arts review pages have reduced so radically. So hardly anybody's getting properly paid for arts criticism now, and that makes the social media aspect more important, but that's an uncurated area. So you have to be really smart in how to, in how you navigate that if you're actually looking for proper criticism you know I suppose you have to get to know people that you trust yeah I don't, I don't really know how things are going to go in the future I think it's quite bleak in a way I think that Schwartz Media is holding the fort really well and publications like Running Dog and Runway I mean all the ones that I write for I guess I'm a bit biased but yeah, it's it's really important, and I think that I didn't myself didn't realise the importance of it until probably in the last fifteen years. My my fourth book, Strange Museums, really took me into that kind of writing and made me appreciate it. Yeah, I want to skip to something that um, that I feel is important to talk about, um, and that I don't often see fully acknowledged. Say, for example, um, as you have done in this book, and that is that this collection, by its nature, because it's focusing on um, subcultures you know, for whom a lot of changes have happened over the the time frame that you've been writing in, uh, even just in the last few years, um, terms around gender, terms around sexuality, terms around identity have changed vastly and become uh, much more mainstream and much more um, engaged with what people's reflection of themselves are. But you've done something that I feel um, really is, uh, you know, it's, acknowledging this but also acknowledging that you don't want to uh, rewrite the past and pretend it it wasn't there and didn't get shaped like that you want to have these artifacts there so you've opened the book with a uh, acknowledgement that you say in keeping with the context in which these pieces were written the original language has been maintained terms that offend people today were once used freely within the community and are therefore retained some individuals have changed their names others had transitioned genders when and if I feel necessary to indicate this I do otherwise I think the writing is best read on its own terms faithful to the time and place in which it was written which is an acknowledgement that you know, obviously um, people may be triggered reading this, um, that there's concerns within it. But I'm really interested in how you've engaged with that because this is an area that we do discuss a lot. I certainly found reading some of these pieces that that, that could be reflected in some of those things that were, you know, even recent pieces written. How did you kind of grapple with this when you were deciding what to do? Oh, I felt that that was so important to keep that language because if you wrote about, okay, so for instance, it's in the essay on Wicked Women that that I think it was most important. And if I had rewritten that, it would have been a lie. It would have been a pretense that that we had more options with gender than we did. And I think that it's 
actually respectful to Jasper Labart, who's one of the first people who transitioned and who's in that essay, to keep it contextual to the times because it reminds people or teaches them for the first time what a significant revolution that was. And there are other essays. I, I think that the, the, the one on Kathleen Mary Fallon's Working Hot goes into the language in her books that really lays bare the brutality of old Australia. And it's important that people understand that's what we come from. And Mike Parr also talks a lot about that in his work, that he wants people to understand what Australia was like in the 60s and 70s. And a lot of it is found in the language. So if I'm working with language, one of my the things that I need to do if I have a historical reach is, is remain faithful to the context of the times. Because otherwise, I'll, I'll be—I'll just be euphemising the experience of people who came through those times. Mm. And if I'm writing about people in the queer community, I can't possibly do that. I mean, I'm queer myself, you know. Yeah, I think it's important to reflect that these are pieces that you know that you've allowed to live in the context in which they were written, rather than pieces that were written now. So I think uh, you know, obviously, you have you've created this document that that gives you a sense of being in those times, in those places, in that mindset, which I think is a really interesting one. Um, and you've also you managed to balance that against the you know with a caution for those who might feel like they're walking over you know areas that. Are problematic for them. And I think that's a really great um, approach to sort of consider that when we do embark now on our writing lives, you know, these are the things that we think about and consider. So I did like to kind of talk about that in a craft perspective, because there are many different approaches to how people have considered these things. So I was interested to see how you've approached yours. Yeah, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that people would be triggered. I mean, there's a clear historical perspective in the book that you see as soon as you read the blurb. And the feedback I've had from younger people has actually been really positive. There's mm. a sense of, you know, learning about history in there. And it's it's a, it's a, something that I'm not wielding in any deliberate or insensitive way. I'm really letting it through as a conduit with a critique of it, you know. Absolutely. It's not just sort of thrown in gratuitously. No, there, there was obviously a great deal of thoughtfulness around it, which I, I thought was fascinating. I really find this book to be something, as I said at the beginning of this interview, and a quite poignant document because it really does show how far many communities have come but also the incredible importance um, and intensity of the performances that, you know, that you experienced when you were a young artist yourself, um, how they shaped you, how you've looked at yourself. There's one moment, because you do delve into memoir within this um, quite, you know, offering stories about, you know, your mother going through chemo or going through, uh, you know, leukaemia and uh, it's quite incredibly moving. Um, But also talking about your own relationship with your queerness um, and how, you know, even though things have gotten better, as you say, there's still that innate fear and you are showing where that's come from and also, but also the strength provided by the artists and community that surrounded you in those times. I think it's a really moving document. Yeah, um, it's it's something that my generation's carrying a lot more than the younger generation is is the scars of that trauma. They're there. You can't change that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Fiona, uh, th- thank you so much for sharing some time with me to talk about Bury Not Dead. 
I it's out now through Duramondo, and uh, I recommend um, anyone who is interested in performance art or even in this kind of, you know, elegant sort of take on criticism should go out there and read it. Thank you once again, Fiona. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That was uh, Fiona McGregor um, who joined me today to talk about her collection of essays um, on her artistic life and the lives around her, Buried Not Dead. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.